On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we love public opinion polls because they give us endless fodder to talk about stuff. But I think many of us have become a little disturbed that they may not always be accurate. Well, there's a Hamilton professor, a McMaster professor, who seems to have come up with a better system, a better polling system. We will talk to him about what this means and how they do it. Also, Don Robertson joins me. We're going to chat about... Well, a bunch of things, including the Leafs. How could a team this talented possibly be this bad? That, lots of other stuff coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't think it's any stretch. I think it's completely fair to say that we love public opinion polls. We love hearing about them. We love talking about them. We love debating them. We love pulling out our hair about them. We love believing them. We love don't believing them or not believing them. Um, they create all kinds of discussions, especially during election campaigns. But I think it's fair to say also that we have reached a point now where a whole lot of people don't necessarily have a high degree of faith in many of them because we've been burned a few times. We've been told that one party is going to win, one politician is going to win, and then, uh uh-oh, didn't quite work out that way, or the numbers are way off. And something may have happened the way it was supposed to, but didn't turn out to be as much of a blowout or as close or whatever else. Anyway, uh, this happens sometime, a lot of the time. Seems like a lot of the time. I don't know if it's really happening all that often, but it's happening. So the question is, are opinion polls, public opinion polls, are they salvageable? Is this something that in 2019 that can still be done in a way that provides some kind of accurate representation of the public mood Or is it just something that is old-fashioned now and doesn't really work? Well, my next guest would say, yeah, it's doable. His app, it's already in use, is designed to be far more accurate than traditional polls. He's been showing an ability to be accurate with his polls. His name is Clifton Vanderlinden. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at McMaster University. Uh, He joins us now. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much for having me, Scott. And by the way, for the listeners, uh, whenever I send notes to professors or whomever asking if they will come on, I always refer to them as Dr. So-and-so. He got back to me just as Cliff. I love it when the professors come in with the humble and, you know, and, and, and don't try and you know, look pious. So thank you for doing that. That was great. Anyway, <laughs> we'll still go with Dr. Vanderlinden for, for this one. Um, why have public opinion polls become so seemingly unpredictable and sometimes unreliable when it comes to accuracy? I think a lot has to do with the way that we're sampling the population. So the way that we're collecting the information that we use to make these uh, estimates about what the public is going to do in a given moment. So, uh, you know, in the days of George Gallup uh, or sort of the earliest pollsters in the sort of modern um, idea of polling, you would have a really sort of ubiquitous, universal way of of sampling the public. You would, in the beginning, send out... uh, written surveys but by mail. Uh, then we had the landline. So pretty much everyone had a landline in their house during uh, you know, a certain era. And so you could have a relative degree of confidence that if you randomly dialed uh, a certain number of telephone numbers, uh, you could get a, a, a random selection of the population or a random sample of the population. And that would allow you to make some representative inference about the way that population was going to act, but we're not we're not in that era anymore. You know, fewer and few, fewer people have landlines to begin with. Uh, the kinds of technologies that people use to communicate are 
varied and uh, the platforms they use to communicate are varied. So the ability to reach out and actually engage with a broad cross-section of the population to understand what they're thinking has really uh, become more and more difficult. So in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s when everybody had a landline and everybody had their phone at home, the way that they did polls then is exactly still the way we're doing them today mostly? You know, it's the same fundamentals. I'll say that. So there has been a move to online polling, certainly. Um, And, you know, a lot of pollsters have been dragged kicking and screaming into the world of online polling. And for some good reason, um, you know, it's, it's polling online has its own set of problems. And uh, some of those problems are responsible for the very inaccuracies that you so uh, eloquently described, uh, you know, in the in your initial uh, discussion of this topic. Um, So we but that but the fact is that we need to be thinking about how we engage with the broader population uh, in, in this new era of information and communication technology. And just before we get into how we would do that, do you have you heard or do you get the sense that the big polling houses, and there are a number of them, uh, do they agree with your assessment of the problems or would they say, no, no, you're, Dr. Vander Linden is just, he's going down his own road here. Would they, would they say you're right? Well, first, I hope they'll call me Cliff too, but uh, <laughs> they would say uh, that the, the point of disagreement between us, Scott, is that um, the cardinal rule that many people who take sort of an introductory stats class Uh, and people who are lifelong um, statisticians and practitioners of public opinion research will tell you about the importance of a random sample, right? They'll tell you if you don't have a random sample, you have nothing. And again, the idea behind that is is valid. You need to be able to get a cross-section of the population and a meaningful cross-section of the population in order to say something meaningful about them. Um, but the notion that anybody can collect a truly random sample anymore is just not true. And so pollsters themselves have developed all kinds of techniques to control for the kinds of bias that can creep into their samples and that can affect the outcome of their, their forecasts. Uh, I'm doing something not that dissimilar. Uh, I'm also including new controls for the bias in, in my samples. I'm just, I think, being pretty direct about it. I think you can go out and collect massive samples with a rich sort of diverse cross-section of the population and then once you've collected that you can then try to filter it down and control for the to control the skews in that sample to try to say something meaningful and representative about the population that you're looking to study. So how are you doing yours and what makes yours different? So there are a variety of ways there's not one uh, one size fits all or one approach uh, to doing this but one of the things that uh, we're doing at my lab here at McMaster is uh, uh, again, co- instead of trying to find the perfect set of a thousand people that we could reach out to uh, to try and gauge public opinion, we're we're opening up the uh, the floodgates, if you will, and we're creating um, and and instead of uh, trying to go out and solicit these people to to come in and take our survey, we're creating really fun, engaging, and rewarding experiences for them online. So they can uh, participate in something that's actually meaningful and will draw more people than would be um, inclined to answer a traditional survey. And so hopefully we can get that uh, richer um, uh, set of opinions uh, from, a, from a bigger group of people. And then once we have that um, uh, group of people, we can then do something called post-stratification. It's, it's, you look at your sample and you look at the census and you look at the, the differences between your sample and your census in terms of the proportion of men versus women, young versus old, educated, uh, level of education, level of income, 
uh, and then you, you uh, weight those observations in your sample so that you can make them more reflective of the population you're looking to study. And we found that oftentimes when you incorporate these kinds of controls uh, meticulously and thoughtfully, you're able to, to actually cancel out a lot of the bias in, in the, that's a, a function of the way the sample's been collected. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Okay, so the idea, one of the big ideas is that we want to have way more people involved in this rather than say, let's doing a thousand people of a random sample. We're going to get tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand people. In a public opinion poll, would it be a fair comment that more numbers generally equal a better result? It's a, it's a great question. The answer is no. Really? If you, yeah. If you have a random sample, a truly random sample, then you can, uh, then you can get away with 1,000 people uh, and make a pretty uh, robust inference about the population. You can make a pretty decent forecast. Um, this is statistical theory at its core. My, my, uh, my criticism is not of uh, uh, statistical theory itself. My, my criticism of the way that is, is of the way it's been applied in practice. So the fact is that these 1,000-person samples that, that are telling you how the election is going to play out or what Canadians think or what Hamiltonians think about a certain issue, these 1,000-person samples are not truly random. And they're not truly random for two main reasons, but there are a variety of others. Uh, one is called coverage error. It's the fact that um, when you go out to try and collect this information from people, the, the mode, what's called the sampling mode, the technology that you choose to try and c- communicate with them uh, via is, is uh, not something that everyone has access to. So let's say you do uh, a landline-based survey. Right. You're only going to get a certain subset of the population. Let's say you do a mailer, so still certain subset of the population. If it's by, uh, by text or by uh, online platform or um, uh, whatever mode it is, you're not getting the whole population. So you have to be conscious of the pockets of the population you're not reaching. And then the other one is called non-response bias. And basically what that means is, you know, and, and I'd be interested to know, Scott, how many times have you gotten a call uh, to, to participate in a survey and you've, you've decided not to, you've hung up or said, I'm sorry, not today? You want to know something? I got one yesterday, and it was, I won't say for whom, but it was an airline. And the reason I hung up is not that I wasn't willing to answer the question. It's because they were offering a free trip, and I just assumed it was a scam, so I hung up. (laughs) Fair enough. And, you know, and there are times when it could be. Uh, But more and more people are hanging up, and 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 there's a pattern to the people who are hanging up and uh, their voices are basically being excluded from these studies by virtue of the fact that they're not they're not uh, being uh, represented in the sample. So the people who are really, really interested in the topic or passionate one way or another are the ones who are probably going to stay and answer it, which would also potentially skew the numbers because it's not the average person. Precisely. And so you often get, in recent elections, you've heard of sort of, you know, the shy effect, whether it's shy Tory or shy liberal or whatever it is, you hear this shy effect in, in polling where people are just disinclined to actually participate in these surveys and state their preferences. Maybe they have a, you know, a weak vote intention and don't, you know, don't really want to articulate it. Um, but this is part of the reason we get all of these, uh, this error introduced into our samples and into our polls as a result. So just to, 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 to bring it back to the main point, that the idea of random sampling is good. And it can, and in many fields, scientific fields, it's, it's aptly demonstrated. 
But in the social sciences, in the social world, which is imperfect, it's messy, and the practice of doing uh, random sampling is, is, is just flawed. And so we need to think of new ways to get a sample that's going to actually reflect the voice of the people. But as you're using modern technology, and I think your point is, and it's not, it's not just your point, I mean, I've heard it many times, that if you do a landline phone call poll, you're going to get, as you say, a certain probably more elderly or older, middle-aged uh, group of people. But if you do this with all modern technology, do you not risk running the flip side where you don't get the older or more mature people who are using an app and you just get younger people? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, and and the, 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 the raw sample is, you have, so I think everyone has to accept that these raw samples are going to be skewed. And they're going to be skewed in different ways depending on the sampling mode, right? Depending on how you go out to people. And you're absolutely right that the age cohorts of people who will engage in online surveys differ from those in phone surveys. Although I will flag that it, it might surprise you that, that even that effect is, is decreasing. Older people are participating sure. more and more in online surveys. And so they're evening out the representation. But the point is that you just have to get enough people across all those cross-sections to be able to properly weight the sample. So uh, the, getting big samples of, uh, of public opinion, you know, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, allows you to have such a rich diversity within your sample that you can pluck out the right observations to create a representative view of, of whatever population you're looking to study. And we only have a few seconds. Are, your, are you finding that you are doing that? Are you finding you're being able to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole promise of this enterprise for, for public opinion research is that you're getting big enough samples with enough people from a different walks of life uh, that, you're, that our inferences are actually, our, our forecasts are accurate. It is called the Center for Digital Democracy. It's at McMaster University, and uh, Cliff Vanderlinden is the guy who's running it. We're going to have you back on to talk more about this next time there's a big event going on because it's, it's a fascinating topic, and it's great that someone is trying to figure out how to make this work even better than we have for more accuracy. Really appreciate you taking some time today, though. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner, operator, Chief Correspondent for the Dundas Real McCoys Hockey Club for Comp Choice Realty. Uh, thanks for coming in. Uh, it's a pleasure. And happy National Vichyssoise Day. That's important. It is. Do you like Vichyssoise? I don't know how you get in. How, how do you get a day? Like when's Scott Radley Day coming? It hasn't come. Although today is National Mickey Mouse Birthday and National Princess Day. They tie in together. but na- And they go with National Vichyssoise Day somehow. So you can have multiple days. Oh, there's there's some days when there's 15 things that are honored as their special day. But today is Vichyssoise. And for those who don't know what it is, it's a delicious cold potato soup. We're going. Oh, mm. boy. Mm, love Vichy I don't like cold soup. Uh, that's the only one I like. Really? It's the only one I like. Because all the other soups that I've ever tried that are cold basically are just pureed juice. I fell for the um, the one one time. You'll really like it. I forget where we were. You'll really like this soup. What is it? It's cold haddock soup or something. <laughs> I went, All right. So I tried it. They were wrong. Well, we've been away sometimes, and they'll have like a you know, a, a cold watermelon gazpacho or something. And it's like, you've all you've done is taken watermelon, put it in a blender, and then put it in a bowl. It's just ground up watermelon. There's nothing else. That's not soup. I mean, I suppose technically it's soup, but it seems like it's kind of a lazy soup. This just is, this mush is, up something and call it soup. This is going to prove that I'm really married. <laughs> you announced the soup. Sue's texted me and said, no, you don't like it. <laughs> 
That was just in case I wasn't sure if I liked it. I didn't know what it was, but I well, told some people I might know what vichyssoise was, which is why I said um, there are two. There are two. Oh, there's a number of soups that people may not know. Uh, you ever tried borscht? Yes. Do you like it? It's okay. Yeah. See that that's one of those soups that uh, on the flip side, cheap, eh? Well, that's, that's an old term, cheap like borscht. Yeah, because it's beet. It's beet soup, yeah. and it was from the Russian beet farmers who didn't have. And and here's the thing. Ground up, mushed up watermelon or pear or whatever, you can just call it soup. No effort. This is really basically ground up, sliced up beets made into a soup. But there is. I like beets though. But there is good borscht and there is terrible borscht. I guess I haven't had terrible stuff. Oh, I, I only I, had a. Pardon, only had it once. Oh, I've had it a few times. And it's it's amazing how you can actually have one soup with basically all the same ingredients that can be either delicious or really repugnant. And um, that's used, one of them. I'm used to eating leftovers. When I was a kid, my parents owned the Linden or Robertson General Store in Linden. And I would we were closed Sundays. And I would know what we were having Saturday night and Sunday because I'd walk through the walk by the meat counter. Whatever was left, that was it. So you got to try a bunch of different things. Thank goodness my dad and mom didn't buy a lot of things that were awful. See, we had... Brussels sprouts, though, were common. You oh. like Brussels sprouts? No. Oh, I love them. Roasted Brussels sprouts. Uh, our family had a thing in uh, growing up that every Sunday after church, my parents, we, I grew up in Toronto, and when I was very young, my parents, every Sunday after church, we'd go downtown to some not very expensive ethnic restaurant and eat some ethnic food. Try something different. Try something different, and it was... What a great idea. And, you know, I was young enough that I was willing to uh, eat anything. You're hungry. You're a kid. You'll eat almost And anything. as long as mom and dad were eating it, so that I saw they were liking it, then probably I would give it. So now there were things my dad had to fake. He told me later <laughs> on in years with uh, with with what he called calamari. He's not a fan of the octopus. Yep. But he would pretend to put it in his mouth and just sort of do the magic trick where it disappeared into his hand, and I was just diving in. I was loving the calamari because Dad <laughs> liked it. We we uh, listen. I tried more and. and any parents out there of young kids, I highly recommend that plan, which I wish I had done with my own kids. Never thought of it till later because I like literally almost any food now, Don. I will eat almost anything. I will try anything. I may not like everything, although I like most things, but I'll try anything at least once. I'm allergic to shellfish, so that takes that off. Right. Well, okay. I'm not talking about counter. something that'll kill you. Yeah. Well, it won't kill me. It'll just flop around for a little while. <laughs> I saw- uh, Become part of that soup. Had some fun. <laughs> Had some fun this weekend. Uh, Stephen and Aaron had uh, the granddaughter, our granddaughter down, Elliot, and they feed her everything that they eat. And I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's not like, oh, we better not let her have this. She just eats whatever whatever dinner is and all the normal stuff. And, and uh, I, I agree with what I'd said to Aaron. My understanding is if you give kids peanut butter and, and all those really things early, early on, yep, and Elliot's just over a year, you know, if there is an issue, maybe the immune system will build up and there'll, there'll be a tolerance for it. And that's what they, that's what not they being say. a doctor, it certainly makes common sense. Uh, you know, if I was giving my very young child, we're getting way off track here, but if I was giving <laughs> my very young child peanut butter, I might do it with a doctor nearby the first time just to see what happens. Because there's so many peanut allergies today, but yeah. I've I've heard that many times that if you give your kid those things really early, well, and they may have talked. I mean, they may have had her tested for stuff. Who knows? I, I don't know. Who knows? But it seemed but like I, a pretty good idea at the time. I am so thankful though that we had all those different foods because now I can enjoy. You're not scared to dig into something. I can enjoy pretty much anything. I again, way off track. 
But I spent a summer when I, you know this, you may have heard part of the story. I spent a summer when I was 17 years old in the middle of the jungle in Papua New Guinea doing volunteer work. And we were 24 hours by dugout canoe up the Sepik River. Hmm. And we were in places where they had never seen white people before. I mean, we were in... Did they think you were lunch? They, they, they actually, there were five of us who were over six foot four <laughs> and white, and they, they thought there was something wrong with us. They did. I mean, and this is, Lon, we're talking that about- That might not have been a bad assessment. <laughs> no, no televisions, no technology, no, like we're, we're talking back decades and decades and decades in this part of the world where they had, now they may by now, that was decades ago. Now they may have had access to all these things, but at that time it was very, very- You were new. Remote. And we were told as we pulled up into this one village that they will serve us something wrapped in a banana leaf and somebody needs to volunteer to eat it because this is their sign of welcome. And if you don't accept their welcome, it's a huge disrespect to them. (laughs) And I was like, well, how bad could it be? I'll eat it. So I put my hand up stupidly. Sure. I'm the idiot. I'll do it. I was thinking it might be good. And we, they open up the banana leaf and there are two grub worms about the size of a, one of those pink pencil erasers <laughs> that are curved, like mini bananas, roasted grub worms. They were cooked though. They were cooked. They were medium rare. <laughs> and I, I smiled and looked at the person and they said, looked at the person who was our leader and they said, you, you got to, we're not making, this isn't a joke. You got to do it. Uh, it would be horribly disrespectful. We may have to get back on the canoes and leave if you don't. So <laughs> I took a chop. I took it. I bit it in half. I took one giant swallow and just didn't even chew it. It just went down with a sliding. <laughs> like an oyster. Well, it was it was kind of like it went down on a river of green juice that took it down. Did you, did you not remember that trick your dad had with the calamari? Yeah, I should have. <laughs> I should have thought of that at the time. But I will try anything once. Anyway, wow. there you go. That's uh, probably most ethnic restaurants you go to in this area will not be serving roasted grub worm, just for safety purposes. So you, you won't have to worry about that with your kids. Uh, let's get back on to why you're here, believe yeah. it or not, which is not as a restaurant reviewer, although we could. Um, how, can the, how can the, you're a hockey guy, how can the Toronto Maple Leafs, with the talent that they have, how can they possibly be this bad? I, just, I, I don't even understand at this point how they can be this bad. Quit on the coach. Do you really think that's what it is? Well, I grapple for explanations. I watched uh, part of the game Saturday night, and boy, they're they're not playing very well. I mean, they're... You're being kind. They're getting what they deserve. I mean, they got smoked 6-1, and that may have been a compliment. And I don't think the result would have been a lot different if Freddie Anderson was in net. No, because the new guy was left alone about five I, times. I think the I think some of them are giving the coach the middle finger and saying, "We need some wins, and if you're going to carry on with this project, this failed project of not using the best goaltender when we need a win, like they, Freddie Anderson is one of the best goalers in the National Hockey League, top ten guy." and you're on a four-game losing streak, you want to give your club the best chance to win. And putting up, putting in the guy kid from the Marlies is not that best chance to win, I don't think. I mean, he may end up being a very good goaltender, and 
they don't play well on back-to-backs to start with. But when you're getting hammered 6-1, it, it looked an awful lot the part I saw, like they were mailing it in. I don't – here's the thing. I, like, I, I just don't understand if you are coaching – if you're managing a, an office, forget hockey for a second. If you're the manager of a business, if you're running a warehouse, if you're doing whatever, and if everything you're doing seems to not be working, at what point do you say, we have to keep at this because eventually it's going to work? Or at what point do you say, what's that old line about if, you know, the, it, continue you to do, repeat insanity, yourself? Insanity yeah. is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. At what point would you say, you know what? Today, we're going to throw everything into a hat and pull out all new jobs. And, Don, you were the forklift operator, but the forklift kept crashing into the guy who was doing the pallet moving, who kept crashing. Everyone's doing a different job. Let's just see if maybe something different shakes everybody. If I'm a coach, at a certain point, how do you not say, these two guys aren't playing well together, this line is not playing well, we're where's the harm in just saying we're blowing the whole thing? Everyone's got a new partner today. Everyone's got a new line mate today. I'd have done that a while ago. Um, we do it at our level. Uh, Bernie runs the forwards, and, you know, we had a, uh, an awful effort in Hamilton two weeks ago, and he said, I'm changing everything up. And w- we had a great third period because every I think – Guys started looking at their line mates, started blaming them. They're going, this isn't working. I was open twice. I'm not getting the puck. So I think they are eager to have that happen. I saw Mike Babcock's quote today when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I've always bet on Mike Babcock, and I'm going to continue to bet on Mike Babcock. And that's Mike Babcock's quote. So now... When you start talking in the third person... When you start talking in the third person about why you're betting on yourself... I'm not sure what your audience is, and I'm not sure who you're selling it to, but I'm telling you, the Grim Reaper's at the door, and you can see him, and you're trying to convince somebody to make him go away. So when he gets to that point, because everybody's after him, well, everybody, the fans are after him, the know-it-alls on Twitter, like me, and uh, it's it, the walls are closing in on him. They got hammered and embarrassed Saturday night. I just, my question is... Uh, since you've talked about the coach, my question is about a coach in sports, period. Part, to me, of the gig is to adjust to the to, to what's going on as opposed to demanding everything adjust to you. Yeah. And I don't see, and I think a lot of people are saying the same thing, and maybe this is the strength of Mike Babcock, the stability and the lack of panic under circumstances. But when you've played 21, 22 games now and nothing is working, that's not a two- or three-game slide. They've, I, they've won two of their last 15 games in regulation time. That's not The recipe for success is not working. One of the things they did in the offseason, and this isn't uncommon in the National Hockey League for a veteran coach, for a coach that's been in the same place for a long time. Barry Trotz has done it, but not to the extent. When you change your two assist, main two assistant coaches, then what that oftentimes can do at the National Hockey League level, because these these guys do uh, teach penalty kill, they teach power play, or they coach it rather, and teach it. Um, 
That's that's what their job is. So that when you change your two main assistant coaches, it kind of changes the voices because you think, well, everybody's getting a little bit stale here. We're not changing the head coach. We're going to make those changes, and that should help. That has clearly not worked. It may be it may be a protest that we like the other guys more than we like the new guys. And in the Toronto Maple Leaf world, it's hard to name the assistant coaches because they're not allowed to speak. If they didn't owe him roughly $23 million still, would he already be gone? Absolutely. And here's the, here's the other thing that, that nobody has to take into consideration, but I do. Uh, I don't think the money matters to the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, they sign Traver. That's a lot of cash. So. $23 million is not another million. I mean, a million or two you throw away and you go, oh, cost of doing bit. $23 million is $23 million. Yeah, but if you think he's going to cost you uh, a playoff spot or not be able to win a round, you can make that back up if you make the change. The thing that everybody looks at now is Craig Berube went into St. Louis and took him from last place to a Stanley Cup champion. That will always be in the back back of a general manager's mind that maybe that can happen. The the thing with Dubas is Mike Babcock is not a Kyle Dubas hire. He did not hire Mike Babcock to be the head coach. He may have had his fingerprints on it. Now, so every every GM when you inherit a coach gets a free firing because I didn't hire him, and now the next one he'll be really scrutinized. And it will probably be Sheldon Keefe out of the Marlies, who they're paying quite handsomely to stay there at, you know, as a backup plan for sure. If that doesn't work, he's in big trouble. Where the where I would have done something different had they let me run the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I it still escapes me why they haven't. Um, from the top, and I mean Brendan Shanahan's chair, Mark Hunter would have been my general manager. Well, you know what, and this is the this is the beauty of pro sports is when you had two guys who were in the running. You're gonna have half the people who said they wanted Hunter, and I'm not saying you're late to the party and just jumping on a bandwagon. And half the people who wanted Kyle Dubas. Well, I wanted Hunter when they. Had and that's fair choice. enough. And I'm saying that you will now have half the people saying they were right and half the people saying they were wrong. And then if Dubas turns it around, you'll have half the other people saying they were right and half the anyway. The reality is, I, I really believe at this point, if Mike Babcock did not have twenty-three roughly million dollars still owing, if he was owed a million or two, if he was in the last year of his contract, oh. he'd have been gone two weeks ago. Yep, absolutely. But they're, I'm, I'm almost now at the point where I'm starting to believe. Okay, the Maple Leafs, MLSE, is looking at this, saying, okay, here's how much money we would actually net if we have two rounds of the playoffs. At what point do we get Mike Babcock's salary owing down to the amount of the playoffs so we intersect and say, okay, we can at least come within reason of not throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars out the window? I don't know what it is. I don't uh, either. In the early 90s, um, when I had an association with the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, when we had the minor pro team, the Smoke and Brantford, uh, early 90s it was worth a million dollars a game in profit. So I don't even want to guess what it is now, but it's going to be an awful lot of money. It would be a lot of money. So, But here's the other thing you have to think about. I mean, we can do that arithmetic if we want to and say, uh, you're right, uh, how many playoff games does that wipe that out and and is that part of the decision-making process? 
What you have to start thinking about now is with the, when they're on the when they're not having any success anywhere, is what's it costing us now to keep them? How many sweaters aren't we selling? You know, is it tougher to get to sell our, our private boxes? I mean, they, they they've been selling those suites based on the fact this team could go to the Stanley Cup Finals at any minute, and right now they're not going to make the playoffs. I mean, Edmonton had to do that. I, I, as I say, we got to go to break. I just I, it stuns me that a team that has this much skill, and I don't think there's anybody who disputes that the Leafs have tons and tons and tons of skill. It just it stuns me. Not that they're not necessarily in first place. Not that they're not winning all their games. It just stuns me that they look so unskilled. That they they they're they're showing no evidence of the skill they have. Well, this is one of the issues you get when you when you put all your eggs in one basket. When you've got Matthews, Nylander, Traveris, and uh, Marner, and you got one of the two of them up. But when you when you're paying that much skill, they they have to be skillful. They have to show up every night. When you because you don't have the luxury of having all the depth in the world mm-hmm. like the Boston Bruins do, and all other successful teams. Most teams that win have got four solid lines. So how long, as we go to break, we haven't seen it yet, how long until the baying hordes start pointing their slings and arrows at Austin Matthews? Because to this point, and John Tavares, because to this point they have received, that I've seen, basically no criticism. Even when they don't have a good game, there's no criticism. But they're still their two best players. But there are also days when they completely disappear, and it's pretty gentle, the criticism they get. How long until the crowds and the fans start saying, Austin, you're getting paid eleven and a half, almost $12 million. You better be a stinking star every single game. That goes back to my point, point. I know you got to go to break. That goes back to my point is it's it starting to look a little bit like they've tuned them out, and it's using as an excuse. Let's go to break. It'd be really interesting if the time comes when Sheldon Keefe shows up, the coach of the Marlies, who is the coach in waiting apparently for the Leafs. Man, they better turn on the results almost right away. And the players are going to cry. We've let Mike down. You can't yeah, fire. Blah, blah, you blah, can't blah. fire. You, blah, blah, blah. We all know the quotes. He's going to walk away with $23 bucks. If, if I was hosting He'll be fine. This, if I was hosting this show and had $23 million bucks owing, Jeff Story, fire away. <laughs> I'll go home and enjoy. Uh, sadly, those are not quite my dollars. With a lifetime contract, maybe. You'd have to live to 182. At least. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Did you read the story about the Houston Astros last week? No. So the Houston Astros are now accused with with lots of video evidence backing it up of cheating. By oh, using, putting the camera in the outfield and by stealing using, signs? Yeah, stealing signs and using cameras and then... They would the camera would show the catcher sign that he put down, and then someone in the dugout would bang on a garbage pail if it was going to be an off-speed pitch, so the batter could hear that the garbage pail being hit. And it's very, very clever, very advanced. Um, I don't know. Half of me says, "If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying." In sports, I don't really love that. Uh, the other part of me says, or another part says. In baseball, people have been stealing signs forever, and I have no issue with people stealing signs. The only problem I have with this one is that because you're using cameras that are set up in your stadium, you are giving yourself a technological advantage the other team couldn't have. 
If you just if you can have a guy figure out who's standing on second base, what the catcher puts down and lifts his left hand so the batter can see it or something, I baseball players bristle at that stuff. I got no issue with it. That's part of the game. But when you're now using something that you've put in place as a specific technological advantage, that to me is is crossing a line that is unfair. I've uh, perhaps you have. I've never seen the manual on ethics on how to cheat fairly. <laughs> like, I mean, if you're a cheater, you're if you're going to cheat, you're going to cheat. Why does it matter how you're? But doing see, I'm it? not sure that even though it's called cheating, I'm not sure that stealing signs is cheating in baseball. It's part any more than you when a pitcher is going to go to home plate and you can see how his movement is and then on the third time he goes, you've read his movement and you decide to steal a base. You're you're picking something up. Yep. So picking up a sign, if you can do it, I don't have any issue with that. As in the old school way of doing it where you just use your eyeballs to do it. Would it would it I mean, would it be a lot different if I mean, what would prevent Houston from, with technology today, you're going to warm up before the game. Nobody's going to pay a lot, an awful lot of attention to you. There's lots of padding out there. Mm-hmm. If you're told exactly where to put the camera as an outfielder, or just drop this in, or do it on the road and have one of your equipment guys set the camera. Do, do it on do it every game. I don't know that you're you... cheat, go all the way. Yeah, I don't know that you could do a... Uh, I don't know if you could put a camera into an opponent's stadium without someone saying that camera doesn't go here. 2019 you can look look at your backup camera in cars no i mean it's a it's a digital sign i mean it's digital imaging in in the backup in my ford pickup outside do you do you do you subscribe to the if you ain't cheating you ain't trying motto in sports i don't know if i subscribe to it i i i I do it (laughs) (laughs) like i it, it doesn't there's no aspects in the standings when it says we think that Dundas Real McCoy's cheated on those two games. I go, but we got the six points. You know, prove me, prove that we cheated. I, I have a great story on cheating, but I, I won't bore you with it right now. It was when we won the uh, 1987 Allen Cup. It was 86. I'm sorry. We lost that series. We Well, I'm going to tell you, I guess. You're looking at me like you want it. Sure. Um, Brantford Civic Center, um, playing the winner from Newfoundland, sitting around having a whole bunch of tea after um, the first game. Got the arena guy to let us in the dressing room, and me being a former referee had a stick measurement device. Measured all the sticks to see which ones were illegal or not. So we knew who had the biggest curve and who had an illegal curve and wrote it down on a piece of paper and handed it to the coach. If you want to nail these guys for illegal sticks in the last two or three minutes of the game, these ones aren't good. Um, Use it? Just once. You know that that uh, that may not have been fair, but um, we lost the series, so it might have been karma. And see, I would say in that particular case, I would say not fair. And the only reason is because you were using an advantage of having your rink and your rink guy, because the other team couldn't get in and see your sticks. Back to and, the manual and do the same. I didn't read the manual that says you can cheat. But this is the only way you can cheat. But see, I would argue that that is... I thought it was creative. It was very creative. And, and I don't... To me, cheating is... Or or playing an advantage that's unfair is one where using the same creative whatever you want couldn't be done equally by both teams. Right? Like stealing signs in baseball 
in the old school way, both teams can do it. If you're good enough at it and you can figure out a system where the guy on second base can see the umpire and he doesn't hide his signs well enough, or the catcher, and he doesn't hide his signs well enough, any team equally can do that. You have to protect your signs if you're the catcher so the guy on second doesn't see it or change the signs or whatever, but each side can do it. It's when you have the home field advantage so you get to have a rink guy open the door or you get to plant a camera, to me, is where it becomes an unfair advantage. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you're going to. I mean, like what if you were to do something, Don? What if, what if you were, again, baseball, between innings, you know, when they come out and they, they clean the, they rake around the base paths between innings. Yep. What if you told your first base guy every inning put down an extra inch of dirt? You'd never get away with it, but do something to slow down the track so a guy can't steal and his footing will be looser there. And then when we're going to come up, quickly rake it all away. Like you, we, we see it in football. We've seen it in baseball. We've seen it in baseball. Detroit, I think it was at one time, was playing a series against a team that hit a ton of ground balls and then beat them out. They had a fast team. So they leading up to that game, they grew the infield grass by about an inch so that everything would slow down. Cheating? I don't know. Every, both teams had the same opportunity to play on that field, even though it certainly benefited one team more. Would that be like having a Zamboni driver go a little bit, well, a little bit a lot slower in front of the opposition's net and lay <laughs> down a little down. bit more water? Um, I mean that. I mean that would be unfair if anybody ever come up with that one and said, "Make sure you're laying a little more water in front <laughs> that, of." Has anyone ever come up with that one? I don't know. <laughs> Fact of that, I haven't read the manual. There are, yeah, it, it's it becomes difficult. I mean, it, what if what if the uh, you know, what if the thing is, oh, by the way, don't quite close the player's bench when a guy's about to get hit. I, I mean, that one's going to lead to an injury if you do that. But like we've that seen idea. that. But we've seen guys yeah, do know. that. We've seen lots of stuff. You never, never want to see a guy get hurt. No, but... It, Remember the goalies, uh, you being in the union, uh-huh. uh, that used to move the snow around. Now the NHL come out and get rid of it in front of the net, and they'd, they'd stack it. Put it on the it, goal line. And they put it on the goal line on the inside of the, on the, inside of the net. See... Again, I go to my definition. That's cheating. My definition of unfair. Everyone cheats to some degree. And again, I I question the word cheating even. My definition of unfair is when one team couldn't do it. Not that they didn't do it, that they couldn't. Roger Nielsen, the late Roger Nielsen, former coach of the Leafs, former coach of the Senators of, who else did he coach? Everybody. Philadelphia. He was everywhere. Uh, He was a genius. When he was with the Peterborough Peets back in junior hockey, uh, he did stuff like the, the three that come to mind. One, when, his, when he would pull his goalie, he would have his goalie lay down his stick horizontally about 10 feet out from the front of the net on the ice before he left the ice. So if someone from the other team fired the puck down the ice into the open net, it would hit the stick and stop. Well, that was eventually deemed to be not legal. Um, another one was that he, um, what did he do? He had... Um, on a penalty shot, he took the goalie out and put a defenseman in because the rule says the goalie has to be in the crease until the player crosses the blue line. Doesn't say anything about a player. So he would start the defenseman at the blue line. <laughs> and as soon as the other guy, the other team's guys touched the puck, the defenseman took two steps and cut him off and poke-checked him, and that was the end of the penalty shot. That got stopped. And my personal favorite was the one where in the last minute or two of a game, if he was down a man... Throw another man out. He would just put another guy on the ice 
and you would get too many men on the ice, and they'd put him in the penalty box, but it would stop and would make a whistle, and then anytime there was a chance, and then if the other team got the puck and started coming down the ice, he'd throw another guy on the ice, and they'd have to stop the play. And because give you two. can only go down to three. You can only have so many penalties. That's right. And he would end up with seven or eight guys in the penalty box, but it would kill enough time that the pen, the power play, you could get no flow to it, and the game would expire. So, yeah, a lot of the things that you've cited um, seemingly are one-sided. I don't think you punish the creative people that come up with ways to be able to cheat. Because that's not, because both teams could do it. It's just that one did it. So um, the stick measuring incident that may or may not have happened. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't me that it did is, it. It is 1986. We're, I think we're out of the uh, statute of limitations on that one. <laughs> just in case we aren't. Um, everybody checked everybody's sticks. I mean, that come up because uh, the team from um, Corner, no, the team from St. John um, were checking our sticks out during the warm-up. And after the warm-up, they got guys out there making notes. We maybe just improved on it a little bit. I mean, it wasn't even. Could so, the other team have got into your dressing room to measure your sticks with the device? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm guessing no. If I wanted in, I'd have figured it out. <laughs> I'd have applied the Zamboni driver at 3 o'clock in the morning to... Uh, Here, here's a 2-4. Here's a Let me in I've the room. Got, i got some more stories I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Anyways, it's just a matter of being creative and wanting to win. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Radley Show. Going to give you your quiz answer in just one second. Don Robertson in. Got a couple minutes left here. Don, uh, today we heard Toronto Raptors are playing right now. Today we heard that Jonas Valanciunas and a couple other guys who were on the team to start last year but were traded and didn't finish the year are not going to get championship rings. You got any problem with that? Mark Juris um, played for the Dundas Real McCoys for a number of years, as did Mike Amadeo, and served us well. Neither were on our um, final roster when we won the Allen Cup and both got Allen Cup rings. Was Mark not hurt, though, in that? Uh... He didn't play in the actual series because we were winning. But, um, no, uh, he had a bit of an injury. My point is we... We awarded long-term guys that had served the organization well with Allen Cup rings because they deserved them. Mike was injured. I uh, see. I, I look at this one with with Valentino. This is this is major league sports. You got traded halfway through the year. Uh, the people who are upset about this, and there's apparently a few who are on Twitter, really bent out of shape that a few of these guys aren't getting rings. C.J. Miles and a couple others who got traded. It's the it's the participation ribbon, participation trophy syndrome. It seems like we have to give everybody equal. They they weren't there for the playoff run. Well, how many guys? And and I don't know the roster. I don't know how many guys played a total of forty six seconds during the entire playoff run, but were traded for bench strength and weren't needed because you have to be that good just in case they get rings. And Drake got a ring. 
I mean, that's the that's the flip argument. I'm arguing against myself right now that you uh-huh. gave one to Drake, who I believe didn't hit a single three pointer in the playoffs. Not sure, but I don't think he did. Nobody was a pretty good distraction. Drank a lot of gin and juice. He drank. <laughs> He's a pretty good distraction for the other guys. I don't know. I see. I'm I, I'm of the opinion that that becomes part of the everybody gets a trophy attitude that I kind of hate. Well, then you got to decide. The then you got to decide where do you draw the line. Well, that's kind of does my Dwayne th- Casey get one? Because he helped build them to what they were. And if you give one to Valanchunas for the reasons that you just said with the real McCoys guys who had been there for a long time, Valanchunas was there a long time, but C.J. Miles wasn't there very long. But do you, you're right. Then who gets one? Where do you draw the line? Well, somebody's got to make a decision, and somebody did. Everybody doesn't like it. Yeah. It, it, you, I think the Raptors already opened a can of worms for the rest of the NBA with the ring they came up with that you've now created a $200,000 ring because everybody from now on, their ring better be worth at least $200,000. It'll go up and up and up. I'm not convinced that, that the amount of rings they gave out, they're all worth two hundred. dollars No, 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 sure but the players. One, yep. The players. The, the next ring, because they're all so big now, the next team that wins, they're going to have to have one of those rings that goes on two fingers because <laughs> they're so gigantic. It's going to be like a well, mini. Well, this one looks like a pail. Well, it, it looks like a, a, a well, a diamond-encrusted plum. And, and it's it's... So I don't know. I that's that's one thing. If you start now giving out rings to all the guys who've ever contributed to the team, I mean, do you go back to Vince Carter? Well, Vince Carter really started the rise of Canadian basketball and helped the Raptors get on the. I mean, I, I don't know. It, to, to me, if you're on the fine, it's like the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup, you get your name etched on the cup if you are on the roster and you play in the playoffs. Yep. That's it, and it, and it's not difficult. It's very simple. And to me, if you're on the roster when we win the championship or you are on the roster at any point in the playoffs, you get a ring. Otherwise, talking about Stanley Cups, we we'll, signed, we'll send a cake. We signed Jason Williams uh, to come back last Friday, and he won a Stanley Cup in Detroit. Justin Williams, the guy who. Jason was... Williams. <laughs> the Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.